Dark Worlds Chapter 4, The British Museum Standing there in Coptic Street, just outside the Atlantis bookshop, I try to think. The masked man's not there and I'm relieved, even though he's just part of a game, just dungeon dressing to make me uneasy. I have a quest to complete. It gives me a sense of purpose, a feeling I've not been much used to these days in the data mining industry. I still have the original illustration in my hand as well as it being copied into my journal. I stare at the picture hard. It's clearly an antique, and there are plenty of antique shops in this area, so maybe that's the first step. I turn left out of Coptic Street and walk along Great Russell Street. I'm soon back at the antique shop dealing in Greek and Roman antiquities, chipped marble busts of long-dead Roman emperors and armless Greek statues in alabaster stare out from the window, and below their sandaled feet a plethora of ancient coins and weapons. I stand outside the shop door mustering my courage to go in. What is it with this world that makes me so nervous? I shake my head, put my shoulder first, press down the handle and step in. A rather well-to-do man in a pinstriped suit awaits me. He looks me up and down and smiles. Good afternoon, Reverend. How can I help you? I return his smile and step over to the counter. Good afternoon. I wonder if you could look at this illustration. A friend of mine would like to find out the period of the piece shown here. On the HUD I have the options for diplomacy 32%, seduction 0%, intimidation 15%. Once again I choose diplomacy, the dice rolls and I get the success notification. The antique dealer frowns as he studies the illustration I lay out in front of him. He takes his fountain pen and taps it against his lip. I've only seen something like this once or twice in my career. I believe they're quite valuable. Really? He shoots me a helpful look. He really wants to help me. The diplomacy skill is a splendid thing. One or two of these were found in the excavations of the oldest cities on earth in what is today Iraq. Ur and Sumer. You've heard of them? Religious law. Of course I know about Ur and Sumer. Some say the Garden of Eden is there. My antique dealer continues. Apparently they represent some primitive god but there have been some documents in Sumerian which suggest the worship of these creatures here predates the Sumerian civilization. I can't remember where I read that. I look up at my HUD. The influencing skills are being displayed again. Why break a winning streak? I choose diplomacy. Where do you think I can find out more about this statuette? Without hesitation, the antique dealer says, The British Library, of course. The library is in the British Museum, but you'll need a reader's ticket. I have that, thanks to Mr Crowley. I can see now where they have the beginner quest in this area. The library is nearby and the antique dealer's shops are close at hand. I wonder if I'd gone into another antique dealer's shop whether I'd have had a different lead. The quest seems quite linear so far. I thank the antique dealer profusely. You're very welcome, Reverend. I stroll over to the British Library. So far, so good. It's free entry and I spend some time walking among the antiquities while trying to find the sign for the library. The scale of the statues and the detail the game has rendered them in is breathtaking. To the left are the Assyrian sculptures, huge terrifying sculptures of eagle-headed demons that look ready to rend tourists apart at any moment. Strolling on beyond those are the Egyptians. In front of lines of sarcophagi stand sculpted figures of the beast-headed gods of the Nile Kingdom. There's a notice to say the Sumerian exhibition is past the Egyptians. I'd thought of going to the library straight away, but this is worth a look, just to see if they have anything like my picture. When I get there, 
The Sumerian exhibition is disappointingly small and the exhibit's dull compared with the Assyrians or the Egyptians, or even the Greeks. Even more disappointing, there's nothing in there that resembles a picture of the green statuette. It seems the antique dealer was correct when he said these statues aren't really part of that civilization. The picture I have is different in style to what I'm seeing here. I take it out and compare it with the exhibits, and the more I stare, the more unnerving I find it. It's more than just a picture. It has an atmosphere. I need to do more research. A curator with a shiny peak to his cap stands nearby, making sure the tourists don't deface the exhibits. I ask him where the British Library is, and he points, That way, Reverend. I tip my hat and walk that way. I remember reading Karl Marx used to sit there. He might even be there now, for all I know. Marxism isn't one of my skills, so I doubt I'd have much to talk to him about. The British Library reading room is housed in the centre of the museum, in a huge domed hemisphere. I knock at the great wooden doors and am allowed entrance. It's breathtaking. The circular room is a hundred feet across and the dome rises with vertical glass windows spaced round it to the boss of the dome above my head. All around the circular walls are shelves and shelves of books, one on top of another. The top shelves are accessed by sliding ladders. In the middle is a central librarian's desk like the hub of a wheel. Around that are two rings of desks for junior librarians. There are gaps in the rings to allow access to the central dais for those bold enough to seek an audience of the Victorian bearded patrician who sits like a king in the middle. All around this hub, filling the room to its walls, are lines of readers' desks radiating out like spokes. The place is very airy because of the high domed ceiling, and through the window I see grey clouds scudding with flocks of wheeling pigeons. The room smells of books, leather and old paper, also the mixed scent of the readers present. I see readers with piles of tomes beside them, writing in pencil into notebooks and jotters, mostly men, mostly middle-aged and middle-class with some younger chaps and the odd woman. I notice I'm even starting to talk like someone from 1927. I approach the central desks and I'm stopped at the outer ring by a junior librarian, a thin-faced man with a pallor suggesting tuberculosis and long days separated from the sun. He doesn't speak, just holds up his hand. I attempt a friendly smile. Hello, I would like to do some research. He blinks, but still says nothing. I sense a disdain. I take the illustration of the green statuette from my inventory and thrust it under his nose. He backs off, sniffs, then studies the drawing. Sumerian, I ask. He raises an eyebrow at me, then returns to stare at the picture. He's really studying it, and the expression on his face as he looks at the picture of the green statuette is of disgust even repulsion. Finally, he says, you'll want the special section. Can I see your reader's ticket, please? I give him the small brown card with my name written on it in elegant copperplate handwriting. That looks in order. Good. Follow me. I walk behind him along a gap between the radial reader's desks. Occasionally, a scribbling scholar glances up as we walk by, stares significantly at the door we're headed for, and looks back down to his work. I realise... I can't tell the difference between player characters and NPCs. No one has a name floating above them. At the door, the librarian produces a brass key and turns it in the lock. Opening the door, he reaches round and flicks a brass pin switch, and electric light comes on. I grin. Fiat Lux, eh? I think it's a suitably priestly thing to say, but he ignores me. The room is much smaller than the huge reading room. The smell is also different here. 
I glance around. It's rectangular and filled with bookshelves. There's a reader's desk with a sheet of blotting paper, an empty inkwell and no ink pen either. Instead, there are several pencils of varying length and a rotary pencil sharpener, the type you insert the pencil end into and then crank by hand to sharpen it. On the left end of the desk is an old-fashioned telephone, not old-fashioned in 1927, of course. The receiver sits on a cradle on the vertical earpiece stand. There are no other readers in the room. It's not Sumerian, he says. In this different light, I notice a thin scar running down his left cheek, long-heeled now. It looks like a German university dueling scar. Not Sumerian, he shakes his head. But you should start there. Sumerian archaeology is on shelf N, halfway down the third shelf up, just after the Hittites. He indicates the telephone. Ring when you're done and I'll let you out. Let me out? Yes, Reverend. Only readers with the special ticket are allowed in here. We have to lock the door. Besides, he says, we wouldn't want some of these books to get out. I realise he's joking, but I don't laugh. The light here is poor. There are lots of shadows. For some reason, anxiety is creeping from my chest into my throat. I glance nervously at the sombre shelves. He sniggers, still amused at his own joke, or maybe my reaction. Leaves, and I hear the key turning in the lock. Just to make sure, I test the handle. The door is indeed locked. I turn and look at the bookshelves. I have the strange feeling they're watching me back. My mouth is dry, though there's no rational reason to be anxious. I check shelf N, follow his directions and run my finger along the spines of the books dealing with Sumeria. They're mostly Victorian and in English, German, French and Latin. I pull the most recent looking one from the shelf and take it to the desk. It was published earlier that year, 1927. Charles Leonard Woolley, The Royal Cemetery of Ur, Modern Iraq, Oxford, 1927. This book, about five inches thick, is backed in black leather with gilt lettering. Woolley had been excavating the site near where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers had poured into the Persian Gulf in ancient times, though now it was in the desert. He excavated the old Babylonian levels, then the Sumerian royal cemetery where he found an enormous death pit from which he recovered a series of artefacts. I thumbed through to a series of black and white illustrated plates in the back. I turn to these and about halfway through the illustrations smile when I see a drawing of what must be the same green statuette or its brother. The inscription says the tentacle-headed figure is Cthulhu and likens it to the Greek Chthonic deity Cthulhu though Cthulhu is in fact an abyssal deity who lurks at the ocean's bottom rather than being from the dry earth. I stop and realise they wouldn't have been able to read the Greek in real life, nor would Chthonic or abyssal be part of my vocabulary. This must be due to the in-game skills I have. I feel a flush of pleasure. That's really clever of the developers. I wonder how they put such knowledge in my head and if it would still be there when I wake. It's odd how I feel returning to 2027 will be waking, but that's exactly it. The illustration has a note directing me to page 287. I flick to that page. From the royal death pit we recovered items clearly not of Sumerian origin in style. In fact, some are quite alien and repugnant. Sprengler's hypothesis is that these are items brought to Ur by refugees in very ancient times. He associates this influx with refugees following the Great Flood, which he dates to around 2100 BC. Certain cult items in particular might be associated with the influx, and these are the statuettes made of a green jade-like material of unknown origin. 
Sprengler notes these appear to be representations of the undersea god Cthulhu or Cthulhu and be designed to set up on home shrines for private worship. C.F. Sprengler H.R. Kulte aus dem Meer, Berlin, 1922. I wonder whether they have a copy of the book by Sprengler and Stand. I feel suddenly dizzy. The room spins and I sit again hard. Strange anxiety worms around my stomach like a living creature, and the corners of the room whisper names in an unknown, chattering language. I shake my head to clear it and see on my HUD a message. Sanity. Minus five. Checking my statistics, I see health, reputation and manner still stand at a hundred, but sanity is now ninety-five. It's something about that picture. The idol leers out at me from the illustration, as if now I've learned his name. He wants to know mine. I dismiss the idea as ridiculous, but it's a clever game effect, and I go back to the shelves. I put Woolley's book back into the gap I'd taken it from. I guess Sprengler's book will be among the Sumerian volumes. As I'm searching, a thin volume with a binding of what looks like half-cured skin catches my eye from the shelf above. The spine has a title in Arabic and a carefully spelled translation into Roman letters by a neat librarian's hand, Kitab al-Asif. I know no Arabic either in real life or the game, but I have no reason to take the book down. But my hand reaches for it anyway. My fingers tingle strangely as I touch the ancient volume, and I stand there in a sudden panic. This really is stupid. Anxiety rises in my throat like withered hands. I stare at this new book, hesitating to open it. With an effort of will, I master my fear and I snap it open. The pages are written in tightly curled Arabic, but the lines won't stand still. The lettering shifts under my gaze like smoke. Its whispering reaches into my ears, and imaginary fingers reach from the book to probe between my ribs and squeeze my heart. I feel their touch and exclaim out loud with shock. I shove the blasphemous book back where it belongs. Thank God I couldn't read it. That thought sprang unbidden to my mind, but if it affected me so badly when I didn't understand a word, how much more terrified would I have been if the words had got into my mind? After all, a thing seen can't be unseen. A HUD warning is sitting there. I hadn't noticed it because I was so preoccupied with my panic. The warning says, sanity, minus ten. My sanity score stands now at eighty-five. I sit at the desk, my head in my hands. I'm shaking. My mouth is dry. I've had a shock and I'm frightened, but I don't know what I'm frightened of. I lift my head as if I've heard a voice calling me from far away. A voice in a foreign language summoning me by a half-remembered name. The corners of the room crowd in closer. That room with its cargo of despicable learning weighs down on me. I must find the Sprengler book. I have a quest to complete. I swallow hard, get up and tentatively walk back to shelf N. There, among the Sumerian books, I trace the author's names, not daring to glance up to the shelf where the Kitab al-Asif lurks. I find Sprengler's volume and with hurried hands take it and return to the desk. Harald Richthofen Sprengler, Kulte aus dem Meer, Berlin, 1924. I turn the page and realise it's in German, and I don't read German. Damn. I swallow again. I need to know what's in that book. Maybe the librarian can translate. Then there's a noise from the corner. It makes me jump, but it's just shelves warming. What does that? Forgetting the door is locked. I stand and try the handle. Then I return to the desk. When I take the phone... I'm trembling. After a minute, a dry voice answers, Yes? I, I need your help. 
finished, I'll be right along. I say, no, but the lion's already dead. It takes long minutes before he comes, and I dart furtive glances at the bookshelves as if they might come to life. Finally, the thin librarian opens the door, the scar on his cheek livid in this yellow light. Find what you wanted. Without waiting for me to answer, he says, good, good. I still have the Sprengler book in my hand. This book, he gives a cold look. Yes, it's in German. Sarcastically, he says, some are. I don't read German. He smiles. Perhaps you'd like to learn. I realize then I can allocate skill points to German to allow me to get information from the book. Can you teach me, I say. Not I, but Mr. George can. Mr. George, he sits in the center with the other tutors. The scary man with the beard. I glance at the volume of my hand. Can I take this book from this room? He frowns. You're not supposed to. Please. He smiles, but it's not a kind smile. Why? Don't you like this room? I shake my head. No, it's got a feeling to it. An unpleasant atmosphere. He laughs, a dry sound like the rattle of a Death Watch beetle. Lots of them say that. So, can I read this book in the normal reading room? His eyes gleam like he has power over me. This once, don't tell anyone though, you'll get me sacked. There's something very unpleasant about this man, a man whose age you couldn't guess. He could be 25 or 40. He looks thin and dried up. I decide I don't like him, but I follow him anyway. We're halfway to the central hub where Mr. George sits when the junior librarian points to an empty reader's desk. Take that one, bring the book with you though. I put my hat on the desk to mark it as mine and hurry after the librarian. I catch up with him outside the central ring of desks. The man in the center with the beard is built like a bear. He wears a dark brown jacket and a wool tie. His beard is brown with flecks of gray and his eyes are shiny like coals, bright as a bird. The junior librarian gestures. This is Mr. George, the library tutor. He can teach you many things. <laughs> ¶¶